Today, I have been asked to talk specifically about substance use, and I realize that this generation, by and large, is not going to let your decisions about your use of alcohol and other substances be made by the law. I am sympathetic to that. Those of us who identify with the Mennonite heritage know that the law is not always our final word. But community conventions have changed, so we're making decisions with fewer understandings of what we believe about substance use. So if we're making fairly individual decisions on matters that strongly affect our personal and communal, physical and emotional health, we need to be well informed. So with the understanding that information is of paramount importance for all of us, for a variety of reasons, I'm going to spend the next 15 minutes or so offering a lot of information about a variety of substances to hopefully help feed further on-campus conversation and decision-making about substances and substance use. There is a huge range of information to share that is interesting and important. I'm going to have to really trim it down to hit the high points, so I want to be clear and open with you about what I consider the high points around which I will organize this information. I am most interested in health, opportunities, and relationships. So with that in mind, let's start with neuronal development in humans. Yippee. Whoops, am I going the wrong way? Yes, I'm going the wrong way. And now I went too fast the wrong way. There we go. Humans with brains. These brains are a little creepy because you can see them on the outside of their heads. Basic science tells us that adolescents' brains are still developing, and the problem is adolescence stretches a lot further than we used to think it did. So here's just a slide from the National Institutes of Health about brain development. We are not going to go into base, uh, basic neurology here, but the, the, the range is trying to show you from 5 to 20 how much ongoing neurologic development is happening just physically in these brains. And that continues, we now know, full adult maturation of the human brain does not happen until 25 or 30 years of age. This is one of the studies that was done in regard to that. When reading emotions, adults, meaning people I think they're saying actually over 25, rely more on the frontal cortex, as you can see in the picture to your left, uh, while uh, teens rely more on amygdala. This was a study of reading emotion, uh, but applies to many other things as well. Frontal cortex is more associated with uh, organized and um, uh, rationalizing thinking, whereas amygdala is more related to um, emotional-based thinking and more impulsive um, thinking. Does that mean that adolescents actually re react differently than adults to substances of abuse? Well, we have some good studies that show they do. These studies actually were done on rat brains, and while you might think, okay, what does that have to do with us? Rats are not chosen for experiments solely because they're easy to experiment on. Rats are chosen for neurologic research because their brains are more similar to ours than many other brains. So you see here on the green graph uh, how many times rats exposed as adolescent rats uh, to nicotine infused uh, nicotine per session of study versus rats that were not exposed until they were adults to the potential for using nicotine. And on the pink graph, you see how much amount, that is the dosage of nicotine that was infused per session per, um, compared to rats that were not exposed until they were adults. This is in no way a put down for young adult brains. On the contrary, the brains of people of usual college age are incredibly well suited to learning information quickly and retaining it well. People in their late teens and early 20s often have social energy well beyond what they will have later in life, and the capacity of people in this demographic to learn, grow, and change is unsurpassed by the rest of us. These very realities coming together, 
that is the vulnerabilities of brains undergoing rapid neuronal growth and change, and the natural capacities and abilities of these brains and neuronal systems both inspire me to encourage those who are the stewards of these brains to care for them well and with wisdom so that their capacities are not diminished or compromised for the future and so that they may do well the tasks they have the opportunity to engage in now. Every healthy human being needs ways to burn off stress and to relax. Choosing to take a walk or to dance with friends, to listen to music or to exchange massages, and especially to talk with our peers and our elders about our stresses, our joys, and our concerns helps us mellow out in ways that improve and enhance our body's abilities to learn and to relate in healthy ways with our friends and with our communities. Choosing to numb out with pot or alcohol will actually decrease our abilities to learn and to feel connected with others, and recurrent use of mood-altering substance actually changes our natural neurochemistry over time, even if we aren't among the group of folks who will experience addiction and loss of a sense of personal control over our use. I would love to say lots more about this issue, how the reinforcing effects of many drugs on our dopamine levels in our brain changes how we make our own naturally occurring dopamine in our brains, but there's really not time for that conversation, which I would love to have sometime. Suffice it to say that chemical and structural changes happen in our brains when they are exposed to these substances over time, and the NIH slide sets have lots of information on this if you'd like to look at it further. Uh, this is related to what makes, what makes these substances addictive to begin with. What I want to do with the time we have today is to look at three aspects of the substances we're going to address, and we're only going to be able to just address a handful. I want to look at the effect of the drug on us when we're actually using it. I want to look at the risks we undertake by not being able to protect ourselves in our usual state of mind when we're compromised by the use of that drug. And I will look at the opportunity costs of that drug's use, which means the things we don't get to do because we chose to use instead of doing other things to meet our relaxation, social, and mental health needs. Sometimes in college, I think that latter one, the opportunity cost, is the greatest cost of substance use. We have so little time to do the things we want to do. Opportunities for meaningful interactions and experiences are all around us, even if it's just reading a fun book or poetry with friends, seeing a movie and having a profound conversation, actually getting to know each other better. None of these activities are well served by using substances that alter our abilities to connect and to relate and to remember. I suspect we've all experienced situations when we're with people who are using when we are not and have watched them sort of drift away from us emotionally and intellectually while we watch until they really aren't capable of relating to us at all. Their bodies will detoxify eventually and then, and then they will get back to uh, normal behavior usually, but until then they won't feel or behave normally almost as if they were temporarily ill. So we're going to look briefly at these three areas with several specific substances and the questions again are how does this substance expect affect my health and well-being short-term and long-term? How will this substance affect my ability to protect myself while it's in my system? And what would my opportunity cost be if I use it? Some of the substances I'm going to address here are legal for people of traditional college age, some are not. I will address them all exactly the same way because these three are my concerns, questions of concern. Nicotine is a nerve irritant. It can be absorbed through the oral membranes when chewing tobacco is used, but is most often inhaled by smoking tobacco or by e-cigarette. Nicotine is by far the most addictive substance we will be addressing today, gram for gram, and maybe that's because it is traditionally used by inhalation, and inhalation is one of the most direct ways of getting drugs into our bloodstream. Nicotine causes vasoconstriction, which increases blood pressure. Tobacco products are highly carcinogenic and irritating to the respiratory tract, but the worst psychological effect of the nicotine is generally considered to be the highly addictive nature. Most people who smoke at all regularly will experience some addiction. And if you think, picture that rat brain slide, I mean, that's the idea is those, uh, it's very uh, reinforcing. 
According to the National Institutes of Health, quote, the teen years are critical for brain development, which continues into early adulthood. Young people who use nicotine products in any form, including e-cigarettes, are uniquely at risk for long-lasting effects because nicotine affects the development of the brain's reward system. Continued e-cigarette use can not only lead to nicotine addiction, but to also make other drugs such as cocaine and methamphetamine more pleasurable to a teen's developing brain. Nicotine also affects the development of brain circuits that control attention and learning. Other risks include mood disorders and permanent problems with impulse control." Unquote. Two, which is the self-protection one, people do not experience a loss of ability to physically and emotionally protect themselves as a result of smoking cigarettes. They do contaminate the air around them for their friends and family. Three is the opportunity cost one. Opportunity costs of nicotine use include the financial cost of buying products and paying for health consequences in time and money. Even short-term use of nicotine products does increase in a risk of respiratory and other illnesses. Vaping. The NIH comments above mentioned e-cigarette use. I don't know how much e-cigarette use there is on campus. E-cigarettes e were initially developed to help current smokers stop smoking by way of using a nicotine replacement device that doesn't have the tar and the carbon monoxide in it that uh, cigarettes do. Nicotine patches and gum have proved to be very helpful devices to aid cigarette smokers in quitting by stages. Unfortunately, this association led to the idea that e-cigarettes were safer than usual cigarettes, and so some young people have begun using e-cigarettes as a supposedly safer habit when they weren't smoking anything before. So that was not the intent of those who developed e-cigarettes, but there we have it. There are several really unfortunate aspects to this turn of events. Snorting and inhalation, as we've said, are two of the fastest ways to get any substance straight into your bloodstream, which is much more reinforcing than other methods of absorption. Mucosal membranes of the mouth and nose and throat are very receptive to absorbing substances, and the concentrations of nicotine that can be achieved quickly with an e-cigarette are very conducive to addiction. E-cigarettes also do transmit particulate matter, which a lot of people think they don't, but they do, including some metals from the devices themselves. So that has its own uh, set of issues. In addition, there are innumerable substances of various hues and fragrances that can be vaped. No one has ever studied what many of these substances and oils will do to a human who inhales them directly when heated, which certainly could potentiate them. This is very concerning to me. Don't forget, when the earlier explorers of the Americas brought tobacco back to England, it was touted as a medicinal herb that would cure your headache at first. So that's a side effect. We'll move on to marijuana. Oops, I'm in the right direction. THC are the initials for the chemical name for the active ingredient in marijuana. I personally have some sense that legalization of marijuana in our country could be helpful, but that isn't because I don't think pot is harmful. I do. There is no doubt in my mind that pot causes harm. I think alcohol is pretty dangerous too, and I don't think it should be illegal. When substances are illegal, the wrong people often end up going to jail and having vocational consequences that are permanent for them. And it's harder for people who want to get help to get help. But legalization is a mixed bag. States that have legalized marijuana are having increased health issues in several areas, including increased accidental exposure of children. So I'm still trying to figure that out. That's not our point here anyway. Let's get back to answering the three questions. So according to the National Institutes of Health regarding marijuana in adults and adolescents, standard inhaled doses of THC impair attention, concentration, short-term memory, and executive functioning. More severe adverse effects may include at higher doses nausea, positional dizziness, delirium, panic attacks, anxiety, and muscle jerking. Psychosis has also been associated with use of higher potency and concentrated marijuana products, unquote. These effects of impaired concentration and short-term memory issues bother me, particularly at a time of life when people want their brains to be learning and retaining information and forming meaningful friendships. Again, from the NIH, quote, because marijuana impairs short-term memory and judgment and distorts perception, it can impair performance in school or at work and make it dangerous to drive. Also affects brain systems that are still maturing through young adulthood. 
by regular use, teens may have negative and long-lasting effects on their cognitive development, putting them at a competitive disadvantage, possibly interfering with their well-being in other ways. Also, contrary to popular belief, marijuana can be addictive. Its use during adolescence appears to make other forms of problem use or addiction more likely, unquote. This is an, whoops. This is an NIH slide about addiction as a developmental disease, just showing when most people who suffer from addiction in adulthood develop their addiction. And so the largest group there is the um, 12 to 17 year olds. You may also be familiar with our developing awareness of hyperemesis cannabinoid, cannabinoid syndrome. I don't know if any of you have heard of hyperemesis cannabinoid syndrome, which is persistent vomiting caused by regular marijuana use. I ran into this syndrome just this year when we finally figured out why a young man in my practice kept developing what seemed like acute gastritis. His stomach would hurt and he couldn't stop throwing up and once we'd hospitalize him and he wouldn't be able to smoke for a while, his symptoms would improve and eventually we figured out that little connection. Uh, it, that's surprising to some people because cancer patients sometimes use marijuana to not have nausea and in those kind of doses in that situation, that's sometimes helpful. But regular um, uh, frequent use seems to more frequently cause nausea and other gastric intestinal upset. The above comment, uh, paragraph also commented on potential effects of marijuana use on decision-making, safety, and driving performance, but this drug is not the biggie for dangers in terms of altered self-perception. The next two are much worse. Three, marijuana use really concerns me most in the area of opportunity cost. Many young people, and probably some you know, use pot regularly enough that they are missing out on a lot of other opportunities. And the real tragedy is, eventually, they may not even care about that. That's the reality of what's referred to as amotivational syndrome that after smoking pot regularly for a while, interest and motivation to learn and achieve can drop off for a person so that their future opportunities are dramatically altered. I hate seeing that in a college student. Huh. Boy, I should have some. Synthetic marijuana, I just wanted to comment briefly, I won't do all three things for synthetic marijuana. The group of drugs referred to as synthetic marijuanas are very diverse and varied, and some of them have almost nothing in common with real THC. They are sold under all kinds of strange names like bath salts and potpourri, and they are clearly labeled as not for human consumption because they're being sold in like drugstores and gas stations, and so they are not for human consumption because honestly, no one wants to get blamed for whatever happens to you if you smoke this crap. These are various weeds and plants of various sorts, dried and sprayed with a variety of chemicals, sometimes even other drugs, that are intended to be smoked, whatever they may say on the package. These drugs cause an unpredictable variety of symptoms and behaviors, often including fear, disorientation, erratic and violent action. I just want to be sure that anyone hearing this talk gets the take-home message that these drugs are not equivalent to pot, whose actions we can at least describe. This is scary stuff that no one is regulating the manufacture of. LSD is in the class of hallucinogens, like mushrooms and PCB. PCP, I said that funny. Hallucinogens is, in general are not as frequently used as they once were, but they are definitely worth knowing about and they have some unique qualities. Hallucinogens pro produce distortions of sounds, colors, and tastes that can be pleasurable, especially initially, and usually the user knows that they are, initially the user knows that they are experiencing distortions. So generally speaking, an, an early LSD user is aware of the, of the uh, distortions they're experiencing. These episodes, episodes of use are referred to as trips, one major concern is that trips can recur after use, sometimes unpredictably and much later. Another major concern, and this is under number two, self-protection, is that people do sometimes respond to their experiences while tripping in dangerous ways, such as stepping out of a window thinking they can fly, etc. So that is an unusual property of the hallucinogens. This is a drug like alcohol where I feel like every user needs a spotter who is not using. 
to make sure they don't do something horribly dangerous while using. Even a spotter cannot protect you from a bad trip, however. With LSD, no one can assure you that your altered sensations will be pleasurable. A bad trip happens unpredictably and can leave you trapped in horror and paranoia for an undetermined period of time. Three, opportunity costs here, not much different from other drugs except possible loss of time of unexpected times later if a trip would recur later. Alcohol in all doses is a depressant in regard to mood, executive function, which includes the abilities to think and make decisions, and muscle functions such as reaction time and sustained normal breathing. Alcohol is a throat and stomach irritant. It is cleared by the liver. So higher doses, even if taken only occasionally, cause measurable damage, measurable damage to liver cells. Alcohol has a fairly high caloric content and so contributes to weight issues for many Americans. Alcohol is a diuretic, meaning it makes you pee more and therefore causes dehydration unless people are careful to replace their losses. That's what usually causes the hangover feeling is the um, uh, dehydration. Alcohol is highly addictive, partly because it is highly available. So more people on a college campus are likely to be addicted to alcohol than to most other substances. Once a person is addicted to any substance, they will never be able to casually use that substance. So college campuses that care about community life need to be aware of not making life more difficult for people who cannot choose to drink casually. Two, which is the self-protection, this is the biggie for alcohol. More than any other substance I am aware of, because of its popularity and accepted use in social settings, alcohol contributes to bad things happening in people's lives. Arguments, unwanted violent interactions, rape and unwanted pregnancy, car accidents, falling down hitting your head accidents, student getting hit by a train on campus accidents, drownings, you get the picture. Anything bad that can happen to a person, including stomach ulcers and many cancers, is more likely to happen if that person drinks. It is true that very limited amounts of alcohol one drink per day for an average-sized man and less than that for an average-sized woman has a, a marginal benefit for health protection, but any more than that in a given day has a negative effect even on your heart. I have a good friend who is a chemical dependency counselor, and one thing she said when I asked her about this talk was, make sure they know that alcohol is the drug the most likely to kill you. The most likely to kill you directly from an overdose or a drug combination, intended or unintended, or directly by causing you to be the perpetrator or victim of violence or an accident. Some of you may know the story of two brothers from Granger. It was actually on Megyn Kelly today last week. Granger is not an hour from here by car. In 2015, these two boys who were then university students, decorated hockey players, good kids, went to a party where they were drinking and were also offered pills, which they took. It's easy to say, that's dumb. I would never take pills. My guess is they wouldn't have ordinarily taken pills either. But they had already had a couple of drinks and they were at a party, which altered their ability to make good decisions. Both boys went home from the party. Their mom said goodnight to them and thought they seemed okay. Both boys stopped breathing in their sleep and never woke up. Their mom, Becky Savage, now speaks around the country about the dangers of oral narcotics, but this story is not just about narcotics. It's about narcotics combined with alcohol causing prolonged respiratory depression. So once they were not being stimulated anymore, they didn't keep breathing. Probably, if we had kept them up all night, they would have uh, kept breathing, but anyway. So sleeping things off doesn't always work if you don't keep breathing. Uh, opportunity cost, if people let their creativity be dumbed down so that drinking is the main entertainment at a party and the majority of people are drinking to excess, that's an opportunity cost. We can all do better than that. Stimulants are complicated. Some people on campus benefit from stimulants used pharmaceutically to treat attention deficit issues and help them succeed in academic pursuits, so there will be stimulants around, around college campuses. Unfortunately, there are probably more stimulants being abused on campuses than there are being used appropriately by prescription, and they can be very tempting to abuse, as there's a lot of pressure on a college campus to produce. 
even by people who do not qualify as having an attention deficit disorder and could perceive themselves as more productive when using a, a stimulant. Stimulants are really ugly as drugs of abuse. They cause nervousness, jitteriness, rapid heart rate, irritability, digest digestive issues, and they can be very addictive. Also, they mix badly with many other medications and over-the-counter drugs, so they need to be used even therapeutically with caution. In the interest of time, I will move on now, but this is an area there probably needs to be more campus conversation in a lot of places, as this is a really fraught one. Prescription narcotics such as oxycodone and oxycontin have become very serious drugs of abuse in our country, sometimes through patients who are appropriately prescribed these drugs after surgeries or injuries becoming addicted, and sometimes through them being used by family members and others, what we call diversion, as drugs of abuse from the beginning. Enough emergency room visits and deaths, particularly of teens, have resulted from the overdoses of these medications that it has become a health, public health crisis in the last 10 years. Oxycontin, which is the long-lasting narcotic preparation that, uh, well, that's the one I'm told the brothers from Granger were exposed to at that party. These drugs' immediate effect is, and I, I, should, I should confess here that this is partly a medical system problem, that back in the 80s we thought these were great drugs for pain, and so we got a lot of people on them for chronic pain. We now know they aren't the best way to treat chronic pain, but a lot of people got addicted along the way. These drugs' immediate effect is to cause the user to have no pain, so to speak. People feel floaty and dizzy, elated and sleepy. The general physical effect is to slow everything down, your heart rate, your breathing, your thinking, your reaction time, also your gut, which causes constipation. They cause physical and emotional symptoms of withdrawal if a person is addicted, and that, happen, that can happen even with medical use, where people have to be tapered off of them. And they produce tolerance, which means over time your brain requires an increasing dose to create the same effect. This is typical of drugs that produce addiction. Certainly these drugs are not safe for driving or operating heavy machinery or making serious decisions while one is under their influence. With these drugs, we also see people seriously compromising their legal futures by their attempts to keep a supply once they're addicted since they are only legally available by prescription. The opportunity cost with these drugs, similar to all serious drugs of abuse, including when people are addicted, they lose years of social and intellectual development. So we see adults who have lost whole developmental stages to their drug and alcohol use, and when they eventually get into recovery, if they are fortunate and do get into recovery, they have a lot of makeup time to do to reach the emotional and intellectual maturity level of their peers. It can be done, but it's hard and time-consuming work. The world and our peers do not just wait for us if we're not present. I'm pretty sure that all of the drugs we've discussed so far, with the possible exception of synthetic marijuana, are drugs of abuse on Goshen College campus this year. I want to just mention heroin right now because it's becoming a drug of incre increasing concern again nationwide. I'm not sure if it's much of an uh, issue right here on campus, though it certainly is an issue in Goshen. I want you to be aware of why it's back in a bigger way. I mentioned the above increasing use of, uh, uh, the increasing issue in our country of prescription narcotics becoming drugs of abuse for teens and others. In addition, there's been this research about how they're not great for chronic pain anymore. So there's been a real crackdown on medical physicians and facilities to not be prescribing there so much. We have been somewhat successful about that uh, in terms of decreasing the availability of these medications because we are using them less for pain. But one unfortunate result of our success has been a resurgence of the use of IV heroin as a street equivalent for prescription narcotics being used by people who were addicted to narcotics and can no longer obtain them as readily. I have a young man in my practice who started using diverted prescription narcotics in college, not here, by the way, fortunately in this case, and then moved on to heroin from there. He is finally in recovery now, but only after a very fortunate event in which he was discovered incapacitated after an unintentional overdose and was taken to a hospital where they saved his life. Before that, he didn't really believe he couldn't handle it on his own. Okay, I am out of time. We haven't even touched on all the drugs of abuse out there. Obviously, we don't need to hit on all of them, uh, though benzodiazepines, the bottom one there, is all the, like, Valium, Xanax, all those that are, that are uh, really bad combinations with alcohol, just to mention. Um, 
I hope we've at least established that there's lots of options and that they each have their own unique blend of challenges when it comes to health issues and opportunity costs. There is one more issue we have to address. So far I have been talking as if you're all making choices about recreational drug and alcohol use. I'm addressing you as people who are making decisions about how to use your very precious free time. And I assume that does include many of you. But I know that some of you are using regularly to cope. And some of you are using to treat depression or anxiety or an aching hole in the center of you. And it would be ignorant to end this talk without acknowledging that. Young people use drugs and alcohol for a variety of reasons, just like old people use drugs and alcohol for a variety of reasons. But people become addicted to drugs and alcohol partly because they are susceptible in some way. If that is you or someone you know or care about, a classmate, a roommate, there are things that can be done to make a real difference in your life and in your future. Every one of you has a unique and needed contribution to make, and your future is worth fighting for. If this is you, contact our office or a prof or a student leader you trust. When you're ready, we're ready. That's it. Thank you, Barb. Good morning. My name is Gilberto Perez, Jr., and I'm the Dean of Students here. Part of what we uh, envision for inviting uh, Barb to come and share a little bit about, uh, in just this uh, 30 minutes or so, of some of the substances that could potentially be uh, being used and abused here at Goshen College was for us to begin a conversation about how we uh, talk about uh, these substances within our midst. And as a community that is trying to live uh, with one another in ways that are holistic, that are uh, meaningful, that bring us together to build lifelong relationships, we think that substances uh, such as that have been described this morning could alter the way that we build those relationships for today, tomorrow, and for the future. So what you have before you at the table are a few questions, three questions that uh, we are inviting you to uh, two things. Reflect uh, on what you think uh, might be happening at Goshen College regarding substance use. Uh, we're also wanting to invite you to dialogue with the people around you for a few minutes on why should we care about each other? Why should you care about substance use here at the college? And then more importantly, if you do think that you know someone on campus that does have a substance issue, or someone who uh, is moving in that direction, it is our interest as part of student life to make sure that that individual or individuals receive the necessary help through our campus counselors or through uh, community mental health centers that are in our area or private practitioners that could help or uh, religious leaders or pastors uh, that might be able to support uh, you in that process. So we want to invite you for we have about 10 minutes or so to step into that dialogue with people at your table. And we're going to ask, I'm asking one favor. So there are a number of sheets on, maybe some of you have two, maybe four sheets, that there would be one person who might be the recorder. And that person would 
listen and write uh, a little bit about what's being said. And if that individual could leave that uh, paper on the table as you leave. There are more sheets available. If you want to take that sheet and you want to write some things later, you want to fold it, put it in campus mail, and put on there Dean of Students, I'd be happy to receive those. But we want to get some data. Uh, we also know that in the spring we will have a substance abuse survey that we will sort of invite you to really uh, engage in that conversation. We care about you and we want to make sure that you're making the best choices possible. So once I come back up uh, in about 10 minutes, uh, we're free to go. But if you could just en engage in a little bit of dialogue on those questions, we'd really appreciate it. So thank you. <laughs>